I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 13 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Our Father, we ask now that you would uh, illumine our hearts and minds that we may receive your word, uh, be obedient to it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week, you may recall that we, what we did is we made a shift because we moved from talking about the importance of corporate worship, what we're doing here on Sundays, and we moved into the area of all-of-life worship. And we learned from 1 Peter chapter 4 that in order to live our lives according to the Scripture, it is our delight to worship God every day, and He called us to pray and to love and to show hospitality and to exercise our gifts in the service of others and to do all of those things for His glory. That's a day-to-day lifestyle. Well, this week what I want to do as we look at, is bounce off what we looked at last week kind of, and then I want to focus in on the topic of holiness, your holiness, the believer's holiness. That we're to live holy lives in Christ's church. And, and we're to do that, we're to live holy lives in Christ's church in the midst of all the worldly temptations that come. And so, we're not surprised that if we were to go out into the world, even now, even here in, in a wonderful, beautiful town like New Holland in this area, but we go out, we'd realize that the world really doesn't want to do things our way, or they don't think our way, or, or even get upset when we do things our way. Um, it's hardly helpful to us to, if we join the world. And this is no surprise. It's always been that way. Apostle Paul wrote, in Philippians 2.15, that we're to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And that can sum us up as well. We live in a crooked generation, and we're to be lights in this world. And that's basically the message that Peter is trying to get across in his letter. Uh, among the many ways you could summarize this book uh, or this letter of First Peter, you could say that Peter wrote this letter to teach us that we're to live holy lives in the midst of a, a pegging culture. Ask yourself this. When the world, this pegging culture, when the world looks at Christ's church, what do you think it sees? When you work along someone who doesn't believe in Christ, an unbeliever, that you are in contact with. Maybe you have an unbeliever in your home, when they, relatives, your family, your neighbors. What do they see and hear from you? I can remember some time ago, a, a, a pastor colleague of mine, we were traveling in Washington, D.C. on a, as chaperones for a high school group. 
and we were going to see all the monuments, and we were in the bus, and you know, it was a long bus ride, and so we were all, everybody was just talking and having casual conversation, and we were talking, and then all of a sudden, this girl leaned in, and she's looking at us intently, and then she says, wow, so that's what holy men talk about. And I, she goes, I always wondered what holy men talk about. Well, I don't know. We were probably talking about football. I, I don't know. But we laughed at that. But it makes the point. It illustrates the point. People are listening. They're paying attention. They're watching. And so my question is this. If someone were to eavesdrop on your life, if they were to eavesdrop on your life, what would they see and hear as it comes to what it means to be living in Christ's church as holy people? What would they find out about it in this unholy world? See, anyone who comes in contact with you, anyone who crosses your path, the greatest thing you can offer them that they can receive from you is your holiness. The greatest gift you can give someone is a life of holiness that is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not holiness apart from the gospel. That's just simply morality, and we're going to hear about that in a moment. But it's a holiness that flows out of the gospel of grace. That's what the world needs. And it's what the church of Christ needs. Men and women called by Christ who live holy lives. And that's what Peter calls us to in our passage. Look at verses 14 to 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. See, what's, what's it saying? Your holy God is calling you to live a holy life. Now, understand the context. Remember the context of Peter's words here. He's writing in a time of great turmoil in the church. The letter is probably written sometime prior to the full onslaught of Nero's persecution, Emperor Nero. Uh, probably around AD 63. Obviously, everybody doesn't agree on this. But Peter himself was likely martyred by Nero, upside down, hanging on a cross, as we're told in history, sometime around A.D. 64. But persecution for the church has begun. And Peter wants Christians to stand strong and live holy. In the midst of that persecution, he wants them to stand strong and live holy. Why? Because it's always tempting if someone has a knife to your head, a gun to your head, that you would maybe not want to live holy so you could keep your life. I mean, it's just obvious. Uh, they didn't want to be killed, and so he's warning them um, to, to stand strong, live holy. But it wasn't just that type of persecution. I mean, that's an important one, right? But we're not facing that today, that outward persecution of, of the threatening of death. No, uh, Nero was also known for his parties. He would throw these uh, uh, large parties. There'd be gluttony, alcohol, everything. And his dinner parties sometimes lasted 12 hours from noon to midnight. And, and, and so the social setting of Peter's readers is not much different than ours. 
I mean, New Holland, everything closes at 5, I noticed. Um, but where I was from and down in Miami, you, you know, up all night. And so you have this lifestyle of, of parties, and they would have been tempted, just like we are, to participate in those sinful activities. Uh, these were activities uh, promoted by the emperor. And so they would be tempted to compromise with the culture. And so in the midst of a society where immoral behavior was the standard, and in the midst of a culture where you, would be, you could die a martyr's death, Peter's instruction is this. You're about to face death. You're not allowed to do these things. You're getting mocked for it. Live holy. And he says the same thing to you and me today. It's as if he's pleading with us right now. Let the unbeliever say what they will. Let them persecute you if they must. But in the midst of all their hatred, in the midst of all their evil, in the midst of all their temptations, I'm pleading with you, Peter, saying, walk with Jesus. Live holy lies. And what I'd like to do this morning as we consider that, that we're called in the midst of this evil generation to live holy lives, to remind you of three points as it relates to holiness. Three points. The first is the model of holiness. The second is the means of holiness. And the third is the motivations of holiness. And so we're going to look at those three points, model, means, and motivations. First, the model. Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We're to be holy like God. When Peter says, as he who called you is holy, he's saying, according to the way or manner God is holy, I want you to be holy. You're to pattern your holiness after God. Uh, To be more specific, you're to pattern your holiness after Christ, who is the fullness of God in the flesh. It's a pattern of life that transforms every moment. Uh, A pattern of life that transforms all your thoughts, every action, every decision. It, it, It permeates every aspect of your life. That's the kind of holiness he's speaking of. Peter's quoting Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, the goal in the New Testament, the New Covenant, is the same as the goal in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The holiness of God's people. That was the goal. And that holiness is to be modeled after God's holiness. Now, in the Old Testament, when you read the word holy, it it, it usually, not all the time, but it usually means separate. Marked off, set apart. The opposite of something that's common or, or profane. It has the idea of being separated from what is defective and evil and set apart for God. Let me give you some examples. The Sabbath is called holy. Is there something incredibly special in the Old Testament of the Sabbath day being Saturday about that day different than any of the others? No. What made it different was God made it his day. He set it apart as his day. Um, One day in seven. And so it was separated from the pursuits of other days and dedicated to the Lord. That's why when we practice the Lord's day, Sunday is different for the believer. It's set apart for God. And we use it for that purpose. Priests are called holy. 
It's because they were holier than everyone else. No. It was they were separated from ordinary pursuits and they were dedicated to a special service to the Lord. That's what we have uh, ordination services for pastors. It doesn't mean that the pastor's holier or better or more spiritual or more holy. It just means that he's been set apart uh, for the service God in a special way. Another example would be the items in the, in the temple. You have bowls. And you have, all these incense, you have all these different things. Are they special bowls? Yes. Why? Only because God set them apart and separated. Otherwise, they're just ordinary utensils. And so that's the idea. Uh, and therefore, they're holy because God set them apart. Well, this is true of God as well. He is a, a reality in and of himself. He, he's set apart from anyone or anything. He's completely utter. One, one writer says, God's holiness refers to the reality that God is utterly unique and in a class by himself. First Samuel says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God, First Samuel 2.2. And so the holiness of God is his majesty being utterly separate and his purity separated from all sin. See, God is set apart from all that is evil and defective and impure. He is completely free from any taint of sin or, or deficiency, which was also true of our Savior Jesus. God is absolutely pure. Jesus is absolutely pure. God is sinless. Jesus is sinless. And understand that all their holy actions flow from a holy nature. And so, as, as one writer has said, the pattern of holy living Peter is calling us to cannot be reduced to a limited number of moral actions. What do I mean by that? To live holy in a biblical sense is not just doing good things. That's included. He must keep the commands, for example. But that's not it. It needs to flow from a holy nature. It must flow from a heart that has been consumed by and set apart by a holy God. And so holiness modeled after God means that we're called out of a world of sin into a life of purity, into a life of holiness. It's a holiness that, that flows from a heart that has been redeemed. It's a, it's a holiness that, that flows from a heart that's been renewed and regenerated. A holy life that is set apart from the things of this world for the purposes of God. And see, when we understand the holiness we're being called to here in the Bible in that way, you can see that holiness is both intimidating, but it's also attractive. And that's what we find in Scripture. You remember the story of Isaiah, Isaiah 6? He sees the holiness of God in the temple area, and the angels are singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And he sees that, and he's torn apart. We read that he says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. He meant, I am done, done, I am torn apart. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, Isaiah 6, 5. It's intimidating to be confronted with the holiness of God. It is all-consuming. In fact, if he were to reveal himself completely in that way, you would be destroyed. It should bring dread upon a sinner to consider the holiness of God. 
But we must not forget that holiness is also attractive. It's attractive. The book of Chronicles, as well as the Psalms, you'll read about the beauty of holiness. And we're told to praise the beauty of holiness. It's not only intimidating, it's beautiful, it's attractive. And so our holiness, model after God, should have the same two qualities. There should be something about your life that causes unbelievers to tremble and something about your life that causes them to be attracted. I can remember when I was dating Christy. Uh, We went on one day to a movie, and then every other date after was church. I was an unbeliever, and I remember being with their family and feeling kind of like what I just described here. There was something about their life that made me uneasy. I mean, I, I, I knew how I lived, and I heard something about this religious family when I, when I dated Christy. But whenever I was with them, there was a way, there was a way of life. Their, their actions, their conversation made me aware that I was different. And, and, and most oftentimes that I was sinful. Um, and usually, you could, oh, they're just holier than thou. They, they're, they're sinful. No, that's not what happened, though. Uh, by the, at the same time, there was something about their way of life that was very attractive to me. Uh, there was a purity to it. And there was a loveliness to it, a, a beauty about it. And so I was drawn in. I recognized that I was a sinner. That wasn't hard at all. Uh, I was really, really good at it. It, it. And so I understood that. But then there was something about their lives that was just different, and it was attractive and their holiness made me aware of my sin, yes, but it also made me want to know Jesus more. It, 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 it wanted me to understand the gospel and how to live for God because that's what they were doing. C.S. Lewis said, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. A holy life will make the deepest impression. And so you're to model your life after the holiness of God, after his majesty, after his purity, and you're to shine in this world. Well, it seems like when you consider that an impossible task, and that's true, you can't do it. Uh, uh, Think about it. Peter's saying, look, I want you to resemble the one who's altogether perfect. I want you to resemble the one who's perfect in holiness, who's perfect in righteousness, who's perfect in glory, who's perfect in purity, who's perfect and majestic in all his characteristics. And so it's an impossible task, and yet we're called to do it. So how do we do this? What is the means, our second point, the means of living holy? And the answer to that question is, again, God. God is the model, and God is the means. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 14. It says, as obedient children. And then in verse 15, as he who called you. If we're going to live a holy life, we do it as children, and we must do it as those who were called by God. 1 Peter 1.3, the idea is kind of the same there. There he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have been called out of darkness into light. 
We who were once children of the devil are now children of God. We've been adopted into his family. And so the means by which we live holy is our salvation. It's out of our union with Christ. Something has changed in us. The Holy Spirit has entered our lives and works holiness in us, that it, it, it flows out of us. You see, this section of 1 Peter actually begins in verse 13. And so I read it. We read there the word, therefore. And what Peter is saying is that because of your salvation and all its blessings, which he speaks about in verses 1 to 12, therefore now live holy. And so holiness is not something you can achieve by only moral effort. In fact, it's not achieved that way. I'll just do five good things today. Nothing wrong with doing that. You should probably do those things. But that's not all the definition and understanding of holiness. To grow in a life of holiness is by conforming your behavior to who you really are in Jesus, your new position in Christ. You're holy, be holy. Holiness is modeled after God's character and based upon God's call. And so apart from Christ, you can never be holy in a biblical sense. It's not possible. But now, and understand, if you're an unbeliever here, or if you're an unbeliever listening, and you hear this and say, well, I'm going to get my act together. I'm glad you said this, Pastor. I want to be holy like God's holy. And you try to do it apart from Christ, you will fail miserably. It's not possible. You need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, if you are now born again, now that you've been justified and delivered from the dominion of darkness, now that you as a believer have been united to Jesus Christ and been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, now that you've been adopted into God's family and given eternal hope, now that your heart and your mind have been transformed and your affections have been reoriented because of all that work that God has done in you, now live holy lives. That's why he says, verse 14, you are no longer to be conformed to your former passions because we are no longer living our former lives with its lusts and desires. We have new desires, new affections. We have new passions, a passion for holiness, a desire for purity. And so we can live in obedi as obedient children under the guidance of our Heavenly Father. We're not going to do it perfectly. We know that. And so the means, though, by which you live a holy life is by the power that's already residing in you. Not your own power. The power of the Holy Spirit. See, what Peter does here, and this happens often. It's a good teaching lesson now for when it comes to studying the Bible. Peter begins his letter, the first part of chapter 1 here, with what's called the indicatives. The indicatives are simply what God has done for you. And then... Out of that teaching, what God has done for you, he moves on to the imperatives, which you know are what you are to do for God, the commands. And our obedience as children is grounded in what God has done for us. Our justification, what is that? We're declared righteous, we're forgiven. We're regenerated, you know, and then because of regeneration, we're justified. And then we're supposed to be sanctified. That's growing in holiness. Well, the justification is the grounds upon which that comes about. We have to do effort. We didn't have to do effort in justification. They're the indicatives. 
but we have to in the imperatives. We have to work. And so out of what God has changed in your heart, you are now able to live holy. He's already set you apart. He, he, he has already purified you. He's already declared you righteous. In justification, you're declared righteous. And now you are to live like you're declared righteous because you are. And so that's the means of living holy. This is where the power lies. It lies with God working in and through us. Yes, we're to keep the commands. Yes, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we need to remember that the power lies with God. And so first, the model of our holiness is God's holiness. Second, the means of, us, of our holiness is living in God's salvation. And so it's no surprise that the third step has to do with God as well. It's the person and work of God is that motivates us to live out our sanctification. Peter says we are children of God as obedient children in verse 14. And so the first motivation uh, uh, for living holy is to please our Father. And growing up, my, my father would use one of those soap things, the brush, with the razor and dip it and shave. And I used to watch him every time he would do it. And um, I, somebody must have told me this story because I don't remember all of it. But I, I do remember him doing this. And he would uh, shave, right, and then put everything away. And I'd sneak in after watching him. I'd get out the soap thing. This I do remember. Putting it on my face. Um, something I didn't do this morning. And, and I couldn't reach the razor, so I would just get, take my finger and go, you know, like this. I wanted to be like my father. I loved him, so I wanted to imitate him. And I thought by being like him, it would please him. And as the saying goes, right, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Well, in the same way, you should be motivated to live holy lives in order to please the God who has loved you in Christ. And he's holy, and so now you are to be holy. You're to copy him. He has no sin. And so you should strive to say no to sin. He, 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 he is pure, and so you should strive to be pure. He is righteous, so you should strive to be righteous. Not to be saved, not to be justified. You've already been justified. You've already been saved. You're doing it out of, out of love for your Father who has saved you. And so the first motivation to live holy is to please your Holy Father. Second, the second motivation is God's judgment. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you call him on him as father is another way of saying if you call yourself a Christian. So what Peter is getting at is this. If you call yourself a Christian, you will live with this reverent fear that you have why you sojourn on this earth. That is why you're here up until the moment until you face the judge. The fear Peter is speaking of is the fear of living as though, as though our faith were not in God. It's, it's a fear of living immoral lives, knowing that our Father, who is also a judge, is watching. See, when you're tempted to conduct yourself in a way that would show that your hope is in the money of this world or the material possessions of this world and the idols of this world, rather than God, he's saying you should fear. 
And when you are tempted to act in a way that would show that your hope is in worldly sinful pleasure rather than God, he's saying you should fear. And that fear, knowing that our loving Father is also a judge, should cause you to rethink your actions and and, and compel you, as it were, to choose the path of holiness. Now, don't misunderstand. This isn't this cringing, cowering fear It's a reverent fear. There's a difference. And the judgment is actually not something to look forward to in terror, but rather in joy. In verse 13, Peter says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is when he comes again and brings judgment. So on the day of judgment, wrath will not be brought to the believer. What's it say? Set your hopefully on the grace that will be brought to you. Grace will be brought to you on the day of judgment. And so the, uh, the day of judgment for the believer can be thought of not, in, in, not only with reverent fear, as you should. You're still standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and your judge, but with joy as well. Because that King who is just will be gracious to you. And it's that joy, though, that you have that evokes a longing to grow to be like our God. And so we're motivated by God's holiness. We're motivated by God's judgment. And now third, I hinted at it already, but we're motivated by God's salvation. See, not only is the salvation we have in Christ our means of holiness, we couldn't be holy without salvation, without justification. Uh, It's also our motivation If you look at the end of verse 17 and connect it with verses 18 and 19, you see the connection here and it becomes clear. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what's Peter saying? What he's saying, he's asking you to do is to consider the manner and the cost of your salvation. Consider the cost. You should fear living as if the blood of Christ was just not precious. And every time you sin, that's what you're saying. See, if you pursue holiness with this holy fervor, if you grow in your love for what Christ has done for you, what it does is it'll move you and it'll motivate you to live a life of humble obedience, a life of holiness. What did the hymn writer say? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And here it is. Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. And so we owe him what? Our whole life. See, beloved, we must never separate the command to live holy from the gift of salvation. Remember your salvation. Remember you've been forgiven. Remember you've been declared righteous because of what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. The precious blood of Jesus. And because of that, it should motivate you to live holy. Otherwise, you're saying, eh, who cares that Jesus died? You do not live holy to merit your salvation. 
You do it to please your Savior. And so the greater the understanding you have of your salvation as you think through these important doctrinal words you find in Scripture about justification and redemption and reconciliation and union with Christ, all those things that you may be a little confused about, the more you understand what Christ has done for you, and the greater you'll be motivated to live a holy life. And so we're motivated by the thought of pleasing our Father. We're motivated by our Father's judgment. And we're motivated by our Father's salvation. And there are other motivations in the Scripture as to why you should live holy. That's what we find in our passage. And so by way of summary, what's the model? It's the holiness of God. What's the means? It's the gospel. And what's the motivation? It's the person and work of Christ. And so when it comes to living holy, there's a central theme, isn't there? The focus, the attention is on the thrice holy God. It's on the triune God. And so do you see why it's different than just morality? Again, only a Christian united to God in Christ can be holy. Holy. Only someone who's been regenerated by God in Christ can be holy. Only someone who's been redeemed by God in Christ can be holy. Only someone who's been reconciled by God in Christ can grow in holiness. Holiness can only flow out of the heart that Christ has changed. And so do you want to live holy in Christ Jesus? I'll close with this. Do you really want to live holy? Well, first, you need to understand you have to be saved. You have to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You have to believe that he rose again. And then you have to grow in your understanding of that. But he must be this. Here's a good summary for all of us. Christ must be the center of your worship. He must be the center of your witness. And he must be the center of your walk. He must be the center of it all. See, the world will never take notice and will never know what Christ church is all about if they don't see in us a passion for Christ and a commitment to be conformed to his image. No matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. Kevin DeYoung, a a pastor, a reformed pastor, said, the world needs to see Christians burning, not with self-righteous fury at the sliding morals in our country, but with a passion for God. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, I'm not looking for a Christian to set the world on fire. I just want to know that if I dropped you in the river, it would sizzle. And so, you could put it this way then. It's simple. A burning passion for God and a burning passion for his gospel and a burning passion for his glory is what your life should be all about. And see, if you do that, if you have that passion, well, then you'll be passionate about living holy in this hostile world, and people will take notice. Let's pray. Our thrice holy God, we acknowledge that as we hear these words, we're torn in fear, possibly because we know that we fall short. And how thankful we are for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a greater passion for you so that we would have a greater passion for living according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.